0: Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Now then, since it was the day of preparation to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews requested a Pilate that their legs be broken and the bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. At this point, Jesus has already died, and they're now going to break the legs of the two men who were crucified with him. They did this so they can no longer use their legs to push up and get a breath, thus causing them to suffocate pretty quickly. It was a gruesome sort of mercy, really. But before we move on, there's a beautiful Old Testament picture of Jesus hanging between these two men. In numbers thirteen, the spies were sent out to spy out the land of the promised land, and they brought back some of the fruit of it. This is numbers thirteen twenty three It says "Then they came to the valley of Escal, and from there they cut off a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men. And isn't that what we have right here? Jesus, who is the fruit of the kingdom, hanging on a pole between two men. The passage I just read describes the death of the two men who were crucified with Christ. And while the conversation is not recorded in the Gospel of John, we know that both men initially mocked Jesus as being the Messiah. But eventually, one of the men came to believe that Jesus was who he said that he was, and he asked him to remember me. What did Jesus answer? Did Jesus say, it's too late for that now? You should have thought of that when you were living in your sin. Did he say, I appreciate your confidence, but I don't know. If we can get through this, I'll see what I can do for you. Did he say, we're both in the same boat, mister. We just have to grit our teeth and bear it. We know that he did not. Instead, he said with quiet confidence, I tell you the truth today. You will be with me in paradise. In speaking to this thief, Jesus speaks to us also. For he not only shows the way to be saved, he also gives the assurance of that salvation. Whenever I read that, my mind always goes back to one of the parables that Jesus spoke in Matthew 20. And that's what I would like to expound upon this morning. If I am ever called to the dying bedside of someone who is unsaved, This is always my go-to text. Verse 1, please. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. The key for understanding this parable lies in the first verse where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom of heaven, that is the key. We are not speaking about the things of this earth. We are speaking about the kingdom of heaven. We're speaking about God, and there, things are different. This parable speaks about the way of God with human beings, not the way of human beings with other human beings. This parable is more about God than anything else. This parable speaks about God in many different ways, such as our plans are not always his plans. And sometimes with our small thinking and our small planning, we limit God's infinite kindness and mercy. Listen to Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So the first thing we see is a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now this would have been a typical scene back in the Bible days. Just as we have employment agencies today, in the first century there were places where day laborers gathered to seek work. These workers were usually unskilled at a trade and were and were near the bottom of the social economic scale. In fact, many lived at a level not far above beggars. They worked from job to job, many of which lasted no more than a day. Now, working in a vineyard is not easy work. At harvest time, which was about this time of the year in Palestine, the grapes had to be picked oftentimes in temperatures of more than 100 degrees. The Jewish workday began at 6 a.m. and ended at 6 p.m., So 6 a.m. was called the first hour, the third hour began at 9, the sixth hour began at noon, the ninth hour began at 3, and the eleventh hour began at 5. This will become more important as we make our way through this. Verse 2, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now we see that there are negotiations between the landowner and this first group for an agreed wage. Now, in this case, the wage was a very generous one. A denarius was the daily wage of a Roman soldier. And Roman soldiers are definitely not in the same category as unskilled agricultural workers. So the landowner would be recognized by the disciples as offering a very generous wage for the work that he desires desired. But please note the words there, agreed with. That means that they had debated, negotiated, and finally received a contract from the landowner. And isn't that what Peter basically said one time? He said, Lord, we have left everything. We've done our part. Now what's in it for us? Peter is saying, I want to know in advance if this is going to be worth it. He, too, wanted a contract. I think one of the hardest things in salvation and rewards is the thinking that we deserve what we were offered. But we should realize this morning that the privilege is being invited or hired. The pay, that's just a bonus. Now, if we were to count the groups chosen, it would seem that we have five distinct groupings. We have the 6, 9, 12, 3, and 5 o'clock groups. But actually, as far as the parable is concerned, there are only two groups. You have one group that worked on a contract, and the other group, the last group, who just trusted the landowner's goodness. The major advantage in that is they work under a different bargain, or we could say a different covenant. Their relationship with the landowner is based upon trust, not what they are due. When they agreed to work, it was only that they trusted the landowner to do what was right. In other words, they trusted in his his goodness that they would receive a reward. Note also this trust is the motivation for their work. So it is with us. And as we progress through this story, I want us to see that if you want a legalistic relationship with the Lord, he will let you. And you can always count on him to be fair. But if you would rather have a trusting relationship in his goodness and grace, he will not be fair. And that he will give you way more than you deserve if you trust him and leave the choice up to him. Voice three. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you go into the vineyard also, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. And he went out again about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. Once again, the account of the vineyard would have been very familiar to the disciples. The grape harvest usually took place in August. But because August was also the beginning of the rainy season in Israel, The foreman that was in charge of the vineyards was always watching for the rain clouds that could ruin the crops. In the morning, if a foreman saw that rain was coming, he would quickly go to the town square and hire workers to harvest the grapes. And if the skies became even more threatening, he would go yet again and hire even more workers. This would continue until the foreman had all the workers that he needed to beat the rain. Verse 6, please. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing around. He said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? The difference between the earliest workers and the later workers was that the late workers were described as idle. Now, please understand that idle doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as laziness. We have often read this parable as people who were lazy and laid around all day, laid around all day, but more likely it's because they had so very little to offer that they had been left behind. So I want us to hone in on an often forgotten scene in this story, and it is that of the choosing. Can you see it? It happened at six, it happened at nine, it happened at noon, it happened at three, but most intriguingly. It happened at 5, 5 in the afternoon. Tell me, what is a worker doing standing in that yard at 5 o'clock? The best have long since gone. The mediocre workers went at lunch. The third string went at 3 o'clock. What kind of worker is left at 5 p.m.? All day long they got passed by. They are unskilled, untrained, and unwanted. They are hanging with one hand from the bottom of the ladder. And as the day went on, the workers left to choose would be more and more undesirable. They are absolutely dependent upon a merciful boss giving them a chance that they don't deserve. Does that sound familiar? So too are we. These workers really represent each one of us. When you think about it, what do we have to offer the Lord? Does he need our intellect, our strength, our money, our good deeds? No. Unless we get a bit cocky, we might take Paul's advice and look at what we were before God called us. Do you remember that? He said, "'For consider your calling, brethren.'" Not many were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of this world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So why is that? so no one can boast before God. Whatever the reasons, we can see that this landowner calls them out of compassion rather than because of anything they can do for him in the remaining one hour of that day. I mean, from a practical standpoint, a worker cannot lose at 5 o'clock with only one hour before time to quit. If all he does is stuff his gob full of grapes in that hour and still gets nothing for his labor, he is still better off than what he would have been just standing on that street corner. Verse 7, they said to him, because no one hired us, he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Now when evening came. The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, starting with the last group to the first. When those who were hired about the 11th hour came, each received a denarius. Verse 7, there is an important exchange. God is speaking here about grace. In those days, if a laborer did not get a job for the day, his whole family might go without food. So out of great mercy, out of grace, the owner said, you also go and work in my vineyard. But please notice, he did not tell them anything about pay. But these last ones went out at once, trusting the landowner to do what was right. Verse 8 says, So when the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. It was written in the law of Moses that you were to pay the workers at the end of every day. We have to realize that they had very little or no savings whatsoever. They would live from meal to meal and hand to mouth. The typical mode of payment back then was first come, first serve. Not surprisingly, Jesus turns it completely around to last come, first served. I'm sure those who were hired at the beginning of the day were beginning to get a bit confused at this point. Those who had worked just one hour had received a full day's pay. This may have sent tremors of excitement throughout the rest of the workers, especially from those who had worked the longest. They probably thought, he just gave those bums a $100 for only one hour's work. Then they quickly do the math in their head. 100 times 12 we're going to make $1,200 today. Forgive my imagination. I can just imagine them high-fiving and jumping up and down and bumping chest or whatever the Jewish equivalent of that was. But it's at this point, the parable takes a dramatic turn, verse 10. And so when those hired first came, they thought they, would, they that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, Those who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day's work and the scorching heat. I think it's interesting to note that the earliest workers did not complain against the 9, the 12, or the 3 o'clock workers, but only the last group, the first to leave, the single-hour performer. However, we find this is only a symptom of the real problem, And that was they were upset that the landowner had made the other workers equal to them. But it's really not about money. They couldn't complain that they hadn't been paid the agreed-upon wage because they had. So instead, in perhaps a moment of accidental honesty, the true complaint comes out. And it is this. The last were made equal with the first we want to be seen as superior is their cry we want everyone to know that we are better than they are they remind me of the elder son in the prodigal son parable he told his father i have worked for you all of these years but when my brother comes back from wasting your money in las vegas you throw him a party Don't try to find Las Vegas in your concordance. I just threw that in. The spiritual application is, we worked hard, but they have been made our equals. Always remember this. In the kingdom of God, our perceived position makes no difference because God shows no partiality. In God's economy, Things are often just the opposite of what we expect. But isn't that how we often are? We want what's ours. And to determine if we are getting what is coming to us, we compare ourselves to what others are getting. And if we get more, we have a smug confidence that we are better than the other guy. But if we get shortchanged we begin to rant and rave about how unfair that is. So the problem in this parable is that our sense of fairness that all of us have tells us that those that work harder and longer deserve more. And if we aren't careful, we can translate that into God's kingdom and his work. And then we have trouble wrapping our minds around the equality of the wage. Personally, I believe there are going to be some great surprises when we get to heaven. We have a tendency to think that Chuck Smith will receive all kinds of crowns and rewards. And no doubt he will. It is without question that Pastor Chuck accomplished a lot in his lifetime for God. But God had given Chuck those gifts and abilities to accomplish those things. But. If God has given someone the ability to be a mother of three, and that mother was as faithful as Chuck Smith in distributing her duties, then I believe she will be rewarded every bit as much as Chuck Smith. We can make the mistake of thinking that visibility and prominence somehow equates to greatness in the kingdom of God. But God rewards on the basis of faithfulness not on what the world considers success. Verse 13. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I want to give to this last person the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I want with my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? The complaint against the landowner was about his fairness, but he was fair. He paid the all-day workers exactly what he agreed to pay them. They signed to work on for an amount, and that is exactly what they got. The landowner was just being gracious and generous to those who had worked less. That's not wrong, unjust, or discriminatory. It's simply just gracious. By the way, that is God's right. He is sovereign. He can call and save whoever he wants. It reminds me of the two most important rules of life. One, there is a God. Two, it's not us. So the landowner chose to go beyond fairness. He wanted to be generous. The last sentence of the story is really the climax and the key to interpreting the entire parable. In fact, what was really under criticism was the landowner's generosity. What he was trying to tell the disciples is that kingdom pay is given and not earned, which makes it grace. Heaven isn't the reward for long years of service like a gold watch is on retirement after 30 years of service to a company. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace. All those who work for the master did so only because he had first invited them. Remember what Jesus said? You did not choose me, but I chose you that you should go forth and bring forth fruit. The landowner gave them the ability to work. Otherwise, they would have have just stood there at that marketplace all day long. So what can we learn from this parable? Those who were hired first had worked all day, and they were angry that those who were hired last received the same reward. But the first lesson we need to learn is that salvation is by grace and serving is by grace. So maybe, just maybe, the parable is not about the workers and their feelings. But instead, the parable is about the generosity of the owner. Maybe it's not about us, but about God. No one serves God unless he or she is saved, and we can do nothing to merit that salvation. So does that mean that we shouldn't work? Well, of course not. Our kingdom work ethic will determine the rewards that we will enjoy throughout eternity. But this parable isn't about rewards. It's about salvation. Maybe part of our problem is in the nature of grace itself. You see, grace is scandalous. It's hard to accept, hard to believe, and sometimes hard to receive. Grace teaches us that God does for others what we would never do for them. We would save the not so bad. But God starts with prostitutes and tax collectors and then works his way down from there. Verse 16 So the last shall be first, and the first last. That's why I think Jesus used such radical language in verse 16 about the first and the last. Notice what he said, so the last will be first and the first will be last. But I also want you to know what he said at the end of chapter 19 in the verse immediately preceding this parable. He said, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. He changes the order, doesn't he? The first and the last and the last and the first all tend to blur together. It's as if Jesus is trying to make the point that the first and the last don't matter anymore in the kingdom of God. Grace is not about finishing first. It's not about finishing last. It's about not counting at all. It's not about keeping score. It's about having a do-over, a fresh start whenever you want it. This morning, You may be at the beginning of your life, like those early in the day. Or you might be at the third or the sixth or the ninth hour. You may even be at the eleventh hour. But do you know what? This teaches us it's never too late to start. You may feel like you have wasted years, and yet this teaches us that God will reward even one hour of labor if it is done trusting in his grace to be the rewarder of those who seek Him. But back to our text in John, the greatest example is that thief on the cross. He came in at the last minute. He metaphorically walked in at about 11:59. With about five seconds, he labors for five seconds, and then says, "Lord, I believe. Remember me." And Scripture tells us he was given a ticket into heaven. That's not fair. That's amazing grace. In one book I read, the author talked about serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. He asked, You know what disturbs me most about Jeffrey Dahmer? Not his acts, though those were disgusting. Not his trial, as disturbing as that was. And not his punishment, since life without parole is hardly in exchange for his actions. What troubles me most about Jeffrey Dahmer is this. It is his conversion. Months before an inmate murdered him, Jeffrey Dahmer became a Christian, said he repented, was sorry for what he did, profoundly sorry, said he put his faith in Christ, was baptized, started life over, and the prison chaplain, who was not easily fooled, was absolutely convinced about his conversion. Dahmer began reading Christian books and attending chapel. Sins washed, soul cleansed, past forgiven. What is our response to something like that? What we want to do is cross our arms and furrow our brows and say, hold on, mister. God won't let you off that easy. Not after what you did. God is kind, but he's no wimp. Grace is for average sinners, like me, not a deviant like you. I've repented and stand forgiven. But as far as we know, Jeffrey Dahmer did the same thing. And as far as we know, Jeffrey Dahmer got the same response. And when you think about it, the request Dahmer made is no different than yours or mine. He may have made his request from a prison cell, We may make ours from a church pew, but we are still hoping for the exact same thing. Like Dahmer and the thief on the cross, because he paid for our sins, we must come to him empty-handed. To come to Christ with some of our own work or goodness in hand is really to commit the infinite insult. How does that hymn go? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross. I cling. So, in closing, God says to the human race in totality, I will not look at what you have been. It makes no difference how low you may have sunk or how you have tried to walk according to your own standards. I will not take into account the arrogance of your pride or the filth of your wallowing. I will not look at what you call iniquity, nor will I look at what you call goodness. I will bring you all to the throne and count you all as equal if you accept my son. I will ask you to admit that your nuances of human efforts and human attainment must be completely discarded, and that you come one and all as bankrupt. Then says God, I will do everything for you, and I will put righteousness to your account as a free gift without respect of persons. That includes the sinner and the saint, the powerful and the powerless, the judge and the judge, the lawyer and the lawless, the noble and the nobody, the proprietor and the pauper, the doctor and the dunce, the strong and the shaky, the glamorous and the gawky, the sophisticated and the savage, the worthy and the worthless. All may be safe from whatever their supposed class background. Leave here knowing one thing. We are all in the same boat this morning. All of us in here have only one hope, and that is that God will look upon us one day and declare that we are indeed righteous in his sight. That's not fair. That's amazing grace. Pray with me. And, Father, that's what it is. An eternity will be too short a time to fully plumb what that means for us this morning. I pray, first of all, Lord, if someone in here does not know that amazing grace, that today would be the day that they would turn to you like that thief on the cross and just say, remember me. And we know that your grace and love is such that you will never drive away anyone who comes to you. And those of us who do know you, Lord, I pray that this would just, I don't know, regenerate in us a freshness of what you have done for us. And that would just propel us onward to share your word with others and to want to live not for the the choice of being saved, but because we are saved, that we would want to live a holy and pleasing life to you just out of thankfulness. And, Father, we pray for the food that we're about to receive. Thank you for everyone who cooked and that we live in a place Lord, we can have food after church. I just pray that you just bless our time of fellowship also, Lord.